to having fall in Florida. So I love it. The cooler temperatures, it, the way my schedule worked out this past week, Wednesday was like my primary day to, to be reading and studying and getting ready for today. And I was sitting at home at my desk with all the windows open and the door open and the air blowing through, wishing I could move my desk out underneath my oak tree and just sit out in the yard. It was so pretty. So I'm glad that you're here this morning. If you're new to TBA, let me be the first to, to welcome you and to introduce you. My name is Brian Legg. I'm part of our lead pastor team. Um, and our church family has been walking through something called Experiencing God. It's a 12-week study by Henry Blackaby designed to help us grow in our personal relationship with God. And we are on week eight this week, adjusting your life to God. So before we jump into all of that today, I want to take some time just to kind of quickly look back over what we've covered so far. So we're going to go back, starting with week one, God's Will in Your Life was the title that we found in our book. We talked a lot about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and how God works through his people. We moved on to week two, looking to God, talking about our lives needing to be God-centered rather than self-centered. Um, really, we're taking some time in there to, to talk about how we need to focus on his plans for our lives rather than focusing on our own plans. Not easy concepts, but not too tough so far. Week three, God pursues a love relationship. We talked about God wanting to walk in relationship with us, how that should be personal and intimate, and it's different for each one of us. It's very unique. Week four, we talked about our responses to God, love and God's invitation. Talked about how we worship. We talked about how God is at work all around us. We talked about our love for him and being aware of the things that he's doing. Then week five and six kind of went together, part one and part two of God Speaks. We talked about how God speaks to us. He speaks through his word. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through circumstances. And he speaks through the church, his people. And we were exploring what it looks like for God to speak with us. So we get through those first six weeks, and for most of us, I think you look at that and you go, well, that's kind of like review stuff. It's not that tough. We've heard these things before. There might be some, some fresh ideas or some fresh concepts in there or things that make us think, but honestly, it hasn't been too tough. And then we came to last week, week seven, the crisis of belief, or as Stivey called it, the faith space, and he defined it like this for us. The place in our lives where we have to decide to walk into what God is asking of us. The space between the word that we receive from the Lord and the fulfillment of that promise. In a nutshell, week seven was about making a decision about what we really believe about God. Is he who he says he is? Will he do what he says he will do? Do we really believe that? Do we trust him? Last week was a little bit more difficult than some of the previous weeks. We've moved from all the feel-good stuff into more of practical application. What does this look like in my life? What is this going to mean for me? And then there's this week, week eight, adjusting our lives to God. And I wonder how many of you would be honest enough to say that this week's study really hasn't been a lot of fun. Hasn't been for me. I don't know about for you guys, but it's been tough. I'm telling you, it's one thing to throw around words like sacrifice and cost and change when I'm talking about somebody else. But when God starts asking those things of us, it gets real, doesn't it? Monday I was reading ahead through the five days of homework and I was trying to, to study and pray a little bit. And you, you've got to understand, because I'm leading the Wednesday night group, I'm always a little bit behind. So on Sundays that I'm speaking, it's like I'm doing homework from one week and reading ahead to the next week and trying to think about where I'm going. And I was all over the place, but I remember reading through and just finding myself in an eternal battle. I was asking questions like this. Do I really believe God's plan and purpose for my life is what's best for me? Do I really trust, to do, trust God to do what is best for me, and can I really let go of my own plans and dreams to embrace his? And the worst one that 
literally broke me as I pondered it was this. Am I really willing to surrender fully and do whatever God asks of me, even if it means great personal cost or great cost to those around me, to my family, to my friends, to others? And so I'm asking these questions, thinking about these things, and somewhere late Monday afternoon after studying for a while, I send out this text to Stivey and Dave, the other pastors on the team, my, my good friends, and the text reads something like this. I've decided I don't want to speak on Sunday. This topic stinks. And being the good friends they are, they responded like this. Crickets, Bueller, nothing. No response. And of course, they knew I was kidding, but at the same time, I wasn't. Because honestly, as I studied through some of this and I looked at what God was saying in this chapter, I went, I'm not sure how I'm going to talk about this. I'm asking these tough questions for me. How am I going to teach anybody else about this? And that's when I realized that that's the whole point. I mean, Stivey said to us last week that when we have that crisis of belief, it's because God is giving us something that is God-sized, not something we can do, but something only he can do through us. It's his strength working in us. That is the struggle. That's what he's calling us to. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's how we put our faith to action. So this week is part two of a three-part response to God. We've heard a lot of things about God, about his relationship with us, about what that looks like. And then this week... We're digging into that with adjusting our lives to his purpose. Next week, we're going to explore what it looks like to step into that plan, to walk in obedience. We've got to make the decision to walk in faith. We have to adjust our lives according to our belief. Then we ha- God can use us to actually do what he's asking of us. So this past week, day one of our homework, we explored several characters from the Bible, and, and he was talking to us about different ways that they adjusted their lives. And when you read these stories, they were really pretty simple stories, really just kind of snippets from Scripture as you read through them. But I wonder how many times have you stopped to think about what was really happening in those stories? How are these people really adjusting their lives? Like he tells, tells the story of Noah. And we know the story of Noah. He builds the ark, okay? And, and we know that that was kind of a crazy story in and of itself. There's a flood coming. You know, the, the earth's going to be destroyed. He's building this big boat. But think about what Noah was going through. This wasn't a long weekend project. This was something that took years. It took him years to build the ark. And the entire time that he's building the ark, he's facing criticism from people. They're making fun of him. They're talking about him. They're telling him, telling him he's crazy. And he's trusting in what God has said to him. And he's building this boat, knowing that the end of the world is coming. He had to change a lot in his life. It wasn't just an evening, weekend kind of project. This was every day, all day. He stopped everything else he was doing to focus on building an ark because God said so. That's a big adjustment. You read stories about Abraham who left, he he moved literally from his home, not even knowing where he was going. God just says, go to the place that I'll show you. Trust me. Walk in it. And Abraham left. He moved. We read stories about David who gave up being a shepherd of sheep to become a shepherd of a nation, the king of Israel. That's a pretty stark contrast from watching dumb animals out in the field because sheep are not very smart, by the way. So he's watching these dumb sheep out in the field protecting them from lions and bears, and now all of a sudden he's responsible for thousands and thousands of people leading them, telling them what God's saying, helping them move in a direction. You read the story of Matthew who gave up being a tax collector to be a a disciple. 
That's a pretty stark contrast. He went from being a hated guy who had a lot of stuff to being a guy who was probably just as hated but now has nothing except his hope in God. Pretty big adjustment. Tells the story of Paul. Talk about somebody doing a 180 degree turn. Goes from persecuting Christians, from killing them, to being a leader of Christians. Not just coming to Christ himself, but being a leader among them. 180 degrees. But there were two stories out of those that really grabbed me. And one was the one where Jesus calls four of his disciples that are fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And he's telling the story from the account in Matthew. And it says, all four of them are professional fishermen. We know that's what they were doing. That was their livelihood. It's their family business. It's how they survive and how they provide. And in the story in Matthew, it basically says one sentence. Jesus calls to them and tells them to follow him. And he will make them fishers of men. That's all it says. Now put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You're a professional fisherman. Unless you catch fish, you have nothing to eat. You have no way of making money. You have no way of providing for you or your family or taking care of anything. You're providing for a town and the role you're playing. And Jesus comes to you and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. One sentence, give up everything you know. I'm going to change your career. I'm going to change your life. They have no idea what that will look like or what the outcome will be. And they do it without hesitation. Without an argument, without a list of questions to consider. The account in Matthew just tells us they followed. They followed. Two words, that simple, they followed. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their families, and they followed Jesus. That's an adjustment, a major adjustment. They gave up everything they know, everything that they knew to follow what God had planned for them. And see, you and I are at an advantage because we go back and we read those stories and we know how it turns out for them. We know the rest of the story. Yes, Jesus called them here, and that's a big deal, but we know what they went on to do. We know about the miracles that they performed. We know about how God worked through them. We know about the people that they interacted with, about all the amazing things that happened for them. They didn't know that. They didn't see any of that. They got one sentence. Come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. The other story that he shared, though, is the one that really floored me. And I want to spend some time there today. It's the story of Elisha, when Elijah comes and anoints him as the next prophet for God's people. And it's part of a bigger story that's going on here. In fact, we listened to part of this story last week. Stivey shared it when he talked about the widow who had just a handful of flour left and, and how the prophet of God came and asked her to make him some bread first before she made the one cake so that her and her son could eat it and then die of starvation. Well, that prophet was Elijah. And when you look at the whole story and how it comes together, there's all kinds of things that God's doing here, things that are proving his faithfulness to Elijah. Start in 1 Kings 17, and you'll see a lot of these examples. Stivey told us last week about Elijah being fed by the ravens. That was pretty phenomenal by itself. And then you have the story of the widow who has a little bit of flour and oil, and Elijah comes to her and says, make me a cake, and, and let's eat together, and you'll continue to have plenty to eat. And you see that, how that works out, that over and over and over she has flour and she has oil, and they continue to eat, and God supplies. Right after that, you see in the story where the widow's son dies, and Elijah raises the boy from the dead. That's pretty miraculous. Then in chapter 18, the next thing, Elijah has the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And this is a pretty cool thing. He calls out these 400 prophets of Baal, and he says, let's prove whose God is real. 
You know, and he puts the bowl on the altar and they douse it with water and he prays and God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the entire sacrifice. That's a big deal. Then Elijah turns and kills the 400 prophets. He's had this major victory. Right after that, we see Elijah go and he prays for rain. Israel's been in drought for three years and Elijah prays for rain and rain comes. God is being faithful, 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 constantly walking with him. Then in chapter 19, this is where I begin to really connect with the story. You begin to see the human side of Elijah here. Queen Jezebel, who was over all the prophets of Baal, puts out a threat on his life because of what he's just done on Mount Carmel. And Elijah gets scared and runs for his life. Now keep in mind, this is the prophet of God who's prayed for a drought and there's been no rain for three years. He's been fed by the ravens. He's eaten bread with a widow who had only a handful of flour over and over and over and over. He's raised a boy from the dead. He's prayed and watched God send fire from heaven to burn up a wet sacrifice. He's prayed and seen God send rain after three years of drought. And now he's scared of a single threat to his life. I hate to admit it, but I feel like I live that way often. And maybe you do too. I see God move in mighty ways. I see how faithful he is. And yet at the slightest struggle, the slightest obstacle, my tendency is to be fearful and to retreat to what I know to be safe rather than trusting God to show up and be faithful in my circumstances. It's really our human tendency. Elijah is scared for his life and he runs. He runs to Mount Sinai and he hides in a cave, but Even on that journey, even as he's running for his life to go to Mount Sinai, God still shows up. He sends an angel to look after him, to refresh him, to give him food and to give him drink and to help him to rest and to prepare himself for the journey. Elijah's running in fear and God's helping him get there. Go figure. And he gets to Mount Sinai and he hides in a cave and it says that God speaks to him and says, go stand by the entrance of the cave and I'll pass by. And you've heard me share this story many times because this is one of my favorite stories things out of scripture, the this, this story as it unfolds. But it says that Elijah takes his cloak or his mantle and he wraps it around his face and he goes and stands before God as God speaks to him. But before he does that, there's all these major things that happen while he's in the cave. There's this firestorm and there's a windstorm and there's an earthquake. There's these big natural phenomenon kinds of things where you would think God's in that. But it says that Elijah recognized God in the still small voice, in the gentle whisper, in the silence. Think about the relationship that Elijah had to have with God to recognize God's voice in that moment. Think about how he had to know God to be able to see that God was in the silence. You would expect God to be in the big miraculous things but he heard God's voice in the silence. And it says he took his cloak or his mantle, he wrapped it around his face, and he walked out to the front edge of the cage to listen to God speak. And even that's significant, that mantle that it talks about, that cloak that he wrapped around his face, that was the sign that he was a prophet of God. That was what a prophet would wear so that everyone would recognize who they were and that they were a prophet of God. And you're going to see more significance of that in a moment as the story continues. But in that moment where Elijah has run in fear, where he's hid in a cave, now God's speaking to him. And he speaks to him to restore him, to refresh him, and to give him a new word. God's still pursuing him. 
He's been faithful, 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 faithful. Elijah runs in fear because he hits an obstacle and still God is faithful to pursue and to refresh and to restore. And when he steps out on the edge of that cave, here's what God says to him, picking up in 1 Kings 19, verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. Travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be the king of Aram, and then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. I wish they could come up with some harder names in Scripture, you know? So easy to get through this. Verse 17, anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape from Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Now, God's reminding Elijah of his faithfulness here. And here's the next thing he's calling Elijah to do. Even after Elijah has run in fear instead of trusting, God's coming to him and giving him a fresh assignment. He says, go and anoint the next two kings, and then go and anoint your successor, the person who will be the next prophet of, for me. But he doesn't stop there. Look at that next phrase. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. We read across that really quick. We don't think anything of it. But this is a very key phrase in this story. Why do you think Elijah's on the run in reality? Why is he so scared? He's scared for his life because he feels like he's all alone. He feels like he's the only one left. In fact, he's already declared that when he's arguing with God as he runs through the desert to go hide. He goes, why are you doing this to me? I'm the only prophet left. I'm the only person who's been true to you. I'm the only person in Israel left that is worshiping you. And God goes, you don't get it. You don't have my perspective. You don't see it the way I see it. I'm still faithful. I'm still in control. You think you're all alone, but I've preserved 7,000 who are faithful worshipers of me, who have not turned to an idol, who have not turned to Baal. You're not alone. You're not alone. I wonder how many times that's our story. We think we're all alone in some situation or some set of circumstances when in reality God's trying to show us that he's still in control and that we can trust him. God is always faithful. Always. And that's not conditional based on our level of faith. Our experience may be affected by our faith or our lack thereof, but God is faithful. Period. So Elijah does as God asks of him, and he goes to anoint these next leaders of God's people. He starts with his successor, Elisha, who will be the next powerful prophet. And again, we've read all these stories, so we kind of know where this is going to go, but pick up the story with me in verse 19. See what happens here. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak, his mantle, remember, that we just talked about, the sign of the prophet, around his shoulders, and then he walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. And Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate, and then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now this part of the story is three verses long. Three verses. Not a very big piece of scripture, right? But we could literally spend all day on what it communicates. 
And I'll try not to spend quite all day, but I want to walk through some things with you. First, let's give a little bit of context of who Elisha is. When Elijah comes to him, he finds him plowing in the field with a team of oxen that is one of 12 teams. Now, if you think about it, farmers in that day, most of them didn't even have oxen. They were using other animals to plow their fields and to figure it out, sometimes using people to plow their fields. Elisha not only has one team that he's working, but there's 12 in the field, it tells us. So he came from a family that had to have some kind of significant wealth in that area. They were probably very well known in the town. They were probably people of status. Elisha has a good livelihood going on here. They're farming. They've got all these oxen. They're providing for things. He's in a good place, has good status. Elijah was about to ask Elisha to give up a lot. See, accepting the call to be God's prophet would mean walking away from wealth and security. It'd mean walking away from comfort and provision, from status in his hometown, to walk into a life of sacrifice and trust and dependence upon God rather than himself. I find it really interesting, the parallels of the stories between Elisha and the rich young ruler. And Blackaby kind of showed us that in our homework this week. The rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to sell all of your stuff and give to those in need. Because he recognized that the rich young ruler was attached to his material possessions. The difference in the story is we see Elisha kill his oxen, burn his plow, walk away. And we see the rich young ruler walk away in disappointment because he's not willing to give up his attachment. See, the other thing that stands out here is the fact that Elisha is actually the one plowing. If you come from a wealthy family, that's not the norm. You're not the guy out in the field working. They had servants to do that kind of stuff. But Elisha is out running one of the teams of oxen, plowing the field, probably alongside his servants. It doesn't tell us that specific. We're just kind of deducting this from what we see in the story. But this is not the normal thing. And I don't know exactly why he's out there, why he's plowing in the field, but I think it shows us a lot about how Elisha had already adjusted his life to be ready to walk in obedience to whatever God asked him to do. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't irresponsible. He didn't see himself as better than those around him. He was in the field working alongside the family servants. So the story goes on. Elijah walks over to Elisha. He throws his cloak or his mantle across his shoulders. And again, you and I may not see the significance here, but this is a big deal. Elijah's saying a lot without saying anything. When he puts that cloak, that mantle around Elisha's shoulders, it's very clear that he's saying, you are going to be the next prophet. God has called you. He's anointing him to be a leader. It's a high calling, a high honor, but it's also a calling that Elisha knows will require great sacrifice and dedication from the very start. Now, there's a little bit of debate over the next verse in verse 20 about where Elisha responds, and he asks to go back and kiss his parents before they leave, and and there's all kinds of different opinions, and it's not the most important part of the story, so I'm not even going to dive into all of it, but I'll tell you, this is my opinion. Some people think that, that Elisha was hesitating, and I really don't think that was the case. As I read through it and put context to it, I think Elisha was saying, I want to leave well. God, I I accept the call. I see you calling me, and I want to leave well. And I think that's why he goes through the next actions he does. And and stick with me, and you'll kind of see what I mean here. Verse 21. Sorry, I was already up there. So Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. Pause right there. Some of you are just going, ooh, gross, he slaughtered his oxen. That's not the, the point either. This was his livelihood. The oxen were a symbol of his wealth, a symbol of his status, and it was how he survived. 
This would be like for you and I, God saying, I want you to do X, Y, Z, whatever that is, and you go in and tell your boss, sorry, I'm done. God called me to do something. No paycheck, no plan, no nothing, just God said. That's what he's doing here. He slaughtered his oxen. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed it around to the townspeople, fed them. Have you stopped to think about the significance of this? This is his career, his provision, his security. It's everything to Elisha, and he destroys them immediately. It's like the war stories that we hear, that we see in movies where the the soldiers come onto shore and they burn the boats behind them because they know there's a fierce battle ahead and there's no turning back. Or the movies that you see where they walk across the bridge and they blow it up behind them because there's no looking back, there's no turning back, we're not going to think about the past, there's only what's ahead. I'm all in. That's what Elisha's saying here. He's adjusting his life right here, right now, immediately, putting his belief to action just like the disciples that left their boats to go follow Jesus. Their boats, their families, everything about their way of life. Elisha's giving it up so that he can follow God's call that Elijah's brought to him. But he doesn't stop there. Because after killing his oxen, he goes on to cut up his plow and uses his firewood. I mean, as if it wasn't enough that he killed the animals, now he doesn't even have a plow anymore. I mean, he's really destroying all of his previous means of life, Right? But I think it's bigger than that. Look at what he does with it. He uses the plow to build a fire to roast the meat so he can do what? So he can basically have a feast for the town. Again, we read across this and we go, okay, so he he cut up the oxen and he cooked it, big deal. But he was providing a meal. This was his way of honoring those around him who were also going to pay the cost for him being gone. It was his way of honoring his mom and dad to say goodbye in a proper fashion. It was his way of honoring the townspeople who looked up to him because he's probably a man of prominence in town. So he's leaving well, making sure that they are taken care of in the process. See, day four of of this week's study, Blackaby makes this statement. He says, one of the most demanding adjustments to doing God's will is deciding to obey even when obedience is costly to those around you. You hear what he just said? Not to you, to those around you. You as well as those around you may have to pay a price for your obedience. See, sometimes following God is hard because it's not just us that's affected. It's us and our families, us and our friends, us and our workplace and those around us. Have you ever stopped to think about how Elisha's adjustment to God's plan here affects everyone around him? His family, his family's servants, the town where he lives, Probably all kinds of people. But even as he makes that decision to be obedient, even as he makes the decision to put his belief to action, he does so in a way that honors God and honors those that are affected by his decision. He throws a big banquet. He honors each of them as he goes. He says goodbye in a proper way. And then the last sentence of that verse It carries huge importance. It says, then he went with Elijah as his assistant. That doesn't say a whole lot, right? But look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't tell us about anything amazing that Elisha was doing. It doesn't tell us about how he was honored by everybody around him. 
It doesn't tell about any miracles he performed. It doesn't tell about how there was a big celebration because he finally made this great honor. It just says he went with Elijah as his assistant. I'm going to give up my whole livelihood, everything that I trust in and depend on, to be somebody's assistant, to be a servant. He was beginning to walk into obedience. He was adjusting his life. The reality here is he took a position of humility and of sacrifice. Cut up his plow, killed his ox, and said goodbye to everything he knew and valued to become a servant to a man that was respected by some but hated by many, honestly. But he was called by God. And God spoke through Elijah, and Elisha immediately adjusted his life in response to God's call. See, I read back through that story over and over this past week, and then I just sat there and I pondered. Could I do that? Could I give up everything like that? Would I do that? Am I willing to say goodbye to everything and everyone that I know and love and feel secure around in order to do what God asked me to do? And see, I'm not saying that God will ask me to abandon everything I know, but he might. Do I trust him that much? Do I really believe that his plan for my life is better than my own plans and dreams? Because I say I do all the time. But do I? Do you? Are you willing to put your faith to action? Do you really believe what you say you believe? Are you ready and willing to back it up with your action? Blackaby went through a bunch of examples in the study this week about what adjusting our lives to God's plan might look like. Things like our circumstances. It might be changing our job. It might be finding new value in the job we have or new purpose in the job we have. It might be changing homes or doing something different in our home, changing our finances, taking less money, making more money to do something he asks us to do, whatever it may be. It could be adjustments in our relationships with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, having different relationships, new relationships, getting rid of relationships that maybe are in the way. Could look like adjustments in our thinking, prejudice, prejudices that we have that maybe we don't even recognize. I love the example he used there of Jonah and how Jonah was called to Nineveh, but he had such prejudice against the people of Nineveh that he wasn't ready to be God's servant. And he had to go through this whole ordeal to adjust his life to be ready to be God's prophet there. Our methods, thinking about our past, how many times we let our past hold us back? Oh, I can't do that because I've had these experiences and there's no way I can do that. Maybe it's changing our thinking about our potential, about what God can do through us, about what he's prepared for us. Changing our commitments, adjusting the way our, our commitments are to our family, to our church, to our work, to our plans. Well, now we're just meddling. You're going to change my plans? I mean, come on. Or our traditions. I mean, we've always done it this way. Adjusting our actions, how we pray, how we talk to God, how we listen to God, how we give. Do we give out an abundance when God provides that, or do we give because we trust Him and make Him first? How do we serve? Are we serving for the right reasons? 
Are we serving because that's simply what God has asked of us and it's our love response or are we serving because we're trying to check a box and show that we did something right? Adjusting our beliefs, our beliefs about God, who he is, our beliefs about his purposes, his ways, about our relationship with him. I know some of you have already been sharing about how your view of your relationship with God has changed drastically as we've walked through this study because you've seen it from a different perspective. It's not about checking boxes or doing something legalistic. It's about walking with a person, relationship. These are just some of the examples of what adjustment in our lives might look like. And you look through these things, and some of them can be minor things. They're not a big deal. But some of them are major. At least they feel major. It feels like a drastic change in who we are or how we've looked at something or how we felt about something. Some of them are costly things, things that impact people around us just as much as they do you and I. So here's the question for the day. What's God asking you to do, and how are you going to respond? Are you going to walk in faith like Stivey challenged us last week and make the choice to trust God's plan for your life? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to adjust your life to that plan? And I'm talking about serious things like kill the oxen and cut up the plow. Are you willing to cash it all in and say, it's yours, I'll do whatever you ask? I'm intentionally not giving you three or four practical ways that you can adjust your life today because the truth is, I can't. It's personal. It's between you and God. It depends on what he's asking of you. That's where our relationship with God is so important. We have to be walking in relationship, listening to his voice so that we know what he wants us to do, and then we have to make the choice to believe and to put our faith to action. This is where it gets real. It's Hebrews 11, the story that Brian mentioned last week, but it's called the Hall of Faith. And you look through it and you see all these stories of people of great faith, people who put their faith to action, who were obedient, who did what God asked of them. And you see this one clumping of stories, there's all these people who put their faith to action, did amazing things for God, and you see all the rewards that came from it, all the ways that, that God blessed and did these amazing things. And then you read on into that next clumping of people. And I don't like that part of Hebrews 11 because they did all the same things. They were faithful in all the same ways. They were obedient in all the same ways. They did what God asked them to do. And it says that they were ridiculed and they were tortured and they were killed and they were killed in terrible ways. And I mean, it it goes through this whole listing of things where I go, I don't want to be in that group of people. Both were faithful. Both put their faith to action. Both did what God asked them to do. They were obedient. And some saw reward here on earth. And the other group, all we see is it says that they will receive their reward at the end of time. It shows us God's promise that he's faithful to reward all of us. So whether we see the results on earth or don't, we're still called to be faithful and trust in who he is. Our memory verse this week wasn't a fun one. Luke 14, 33, and I'm not going to make you say it this week. I'll give you a week off. Don't expect this to ever happen again because I like the challenge. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That's short and sweet and easy to memorize, but I don't want to memorize it. I'm just being honest. I, I read through that a few times. I was like, I don't know that I want that in my repertoire. Anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. God has to be first priority. 
He comes before anything or everything else. We've got to be like Elisha and willing to, burn, to kill the oxen and burn the plow to follow after him. Band, you guys come on up. Following Christ isn't easy. There's a cost involved, always. Jesus told us that we'd have trouble here on earth, but he also offered us hope for our eternity with God, telling us that it would be unimaginably amazing and that the reward for our faithful obedience here on earth will be worth it no matter what the cost is today. So what will you choose? Will you put your faith to action and adjust your life to God's plan? Or will you keep doing life the way you've always done it and wonder what God's best for you might actually look like? The disciples didn't know what he had planned. Abraham didn't know for sure what he had planned. Noah surely didn't fully understand what he had planned. Elisha didn't know what he had planned. But they walked in faithful obedience. And God did amazing things through them. For your sake and for the sake of God's plan for this church, I'm praying that you will choose to put your faith to action and adjust your life to his plan, whatever that might look like. Would you go ahead and stand with me? We're going to pray, and as the band sings, I'm just simply going to ask you to respond however God may lead. Next Steps is always available back here. If you want to talk to somebody, there will be people there that can talk to you. We'll be happy to do that. Love to pray with you. But I don't know what you need to do with this. I don't know what God's saying to you. But I'm confident that God is asking you to adjust your life to his plans, whatever that looks like. And so I'm asking you to put your faith to action this morning and do that. Make whatever adjustments are necessary because it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Let's pray. God, thank you for how you speak to our hearts. Thank you for how you continue to remind us of your love and of your faithfulness. God, I'm thankful for how we see your faithfulness over and over and over and over in these stories. God, just thinking back to Elijah's story and the many times that you showed up and did amazing things and proved yourself faithful to him. And God, I'm also thankful that I get to see that he's human just like me and that he sometimes runs in fear and sometimes makes the wrong decisions and sometimes walks away from your best for him. And that even in those moments that you pursue him, I'm reminded that even in the moments where I'm not faithful, that you still pursue me. And you still give me opportunity to put my faith to action and to trust in you and to adjust my life. And so, God, I simply pray for two things this morning. I pray, one, that, that you would just allow your purposes and your ways to burn in our hearts. Whatever it is that you're asking of us, don't let us get away from it. God, help us to be able to recognize your voice today, to know clearly what it is that you're speaking to us. You've promised that over and over, that we will know when you're speaking to us. And then beyond that, God, I pray that you would give us the courage we need to make the adjustments, the adjustments that we have to make in our lives to be in a place of obedience. We heard last week about the, the tough place of really standing up for what we believe putting our faith in you and trusting you. This week's about putting that to action. And I know next week we're going to be challenged to take another step to walk in obedience in that. But it's got to start here. We've got to adjust our lives now, here, today, to be prepared for what you're asking us to do.
you speak to our hearts and may we not walk away without making the adjustments necessary. It's in your name we pray. Amen.